Section 17 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Descent of Man, Part 2, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 14. Birds Continued, Part 2. Turning now to domesticated and confined birds, I will commence by giving what little I have learnt respecting the courtship of fowls. I have received long letters on this subject from Messrs. Hewitt and Tegetmeyer, and almost an essay from the late Mr. Brent. It will be admitted by every one that these gentlemen, so well known from their published works, are careful and experienced observers. They do not believe that the females prefer certain males on account of the beauty of their plumage but some allowance must be made for the artificial state under which these birds have long been kept. Mr. Tegetmeyer is convinced that a gamecock, though disfigured by being dubbed and with his hackles trimmed, would be accepted as readily as a male retaining all his natural ornaments. Mr. Brent, however, admits that the beauty of the male probably aids in exciting the female, and her acquiescence is necessary. Mr. Hewitt is convinced that the union is by no means left to mere chance, for the female almost invariably prefers the most vigorous, defiant, and meddlesome male. Hence it is almost useless, as he remarks, quote, to attempt true breeding if a gamecock in good health and condition runs the locality, for almost every hen on leaving the roosting place will resort to the gamecock even though that bird may not actually drive away the male of her own variety. Under ordinary circumstances, the males and females of the fowl seem to come to a mutual understanding by means of certain gestures, described to me by Mr. Brent. But hens will often avoid the officious attentions of young males. Old hens, and hens of pugnacious disposition, as the same writer informs me, dislike strange males, and will not yield until well beaten into compliance. Ferguson, however, describes how a quarrelsome hen was subdued by the gentle courtship of a Shanghai cock. There is reason to believe that pigeons of both sexes prefer pairing with birds of the same breed, and dovecoat pigeons dislike all the highly improved breeds. Mr. Harrison Ware has lately heard from a trustworthy observer who keeps blue pigeons that these drive away all other colored varieties, such as white, red, and yellow, and from another observer, that a female dun carrier could not, after repeated trials, be matched with a black male, but immediately paired with a dun. Again, Mr. Tegetmeyer had a female blue turbot that obstinately refused to pair with two males of the same breed, which were successfully shut up with her for weeks but on being let out she would have immediately accepted the first blue dragon that offered. As she was a valuable bird, she was then shut up for many weeks with a silver, i.e. very pale blue, male, and at last mated with him. Nevertheless, as a general rule, color appears to have little influence on the pairing of pigeons. Mr. Tegetmeyer, at my request, stained some of the birds with magenta, but they were not much noticed by the others. Female pigeons occasionally feel a strong antipathy toward certain males, without any assignable cause. Thus, Messrs. Boitard and Corby, whose experience extended over forty-five years, state, quote, 
quand une femelle éprouve de l'antipathie pour un mâle avec lequel on veut l'accoupler, malgré tous les feux de la mort, malgré l'alpiste et le chenevis dont on la nourrit pour augmenter son ardeur, malgré un emprisonnement de six mois et même d'un an, elle refuse constamment ses caresses. Les avances impressées, les agaceries, les trunoiements, les tendres recoulements, rien ne peut lui plaire ni l'émouvoir. Gonflée, boudouze, blottie dans un coin de sa prison, elle n'en sort que pour boire et manger, ou pour repousser avec une espèce de rage des caresses devenues trop présentes. End quote. On the other hand, Mr. Harrison Ware has himself observed, and has heard from several breeders, that a female pigeon will occasionally take a strong fancy for a particular male, and will desert her own mate for him. Some females, according to another experienced observer, Rydell, are of profligate disposition, and prefer almost any stranger to their own mate. Some amorous males, called by our English fanciers gay birds, are so successful in their gallantries that, as Mr. H. Ware informs me, they must be shut up on account of the mischief which they cause. Wild turkeys in the United States, according to Audubon, quote, sometimes pay their addresses to the domesticated females, and are generally received by them with great pleasure, end quote, so that these females apparently prefer the wild to their own males. Here is a more serious case. Sir R. Huron, during many years, kept an account of habits of the peafowl, which he bred in large numbers. He states that, quote, The hens have frequently great preference to a particular peafowl. They were all so fond of an old pied cock that one year, when he was confined, though still in view, they were constantly assembled close to the trellis walls of his prison and would not suffer a japanned peacock to touch them. On his being let out in the autumn, the oldest of the hens instantly courted him and was successful in her courtship. The next year he was shut up in a stable, and then the hens all courted his rival. The japanned peacock is considered by Mr. Sclater as a distinct species, and has been named Pavo nigripenis, but the evidence seems to me to show that it is only a variety. This rival was a japanned, or black-winged peacock, to our eyes a more beautiful bird than the common kind. Lichtenstein, who was a good observer, and had excellent opportunities of observation at the Cape of Good Hope, assured Rodolphe that the female widow bird, Cara Progne, disowns the male when robbed of the long tail-feathers with which he is ornamented during the breeding season. I presume that this observation must have been made on birds under confinement. Here is an analogous case. Dr. Jaeger, director of the Zoological Gardens of Vienna, states that a male silver pheasant, who has been triumphant over all other males, and was the accepted lover of the females, had his ornamental plumage spoiled. He was then immediately superseded by a rival, who got the upper hand, and afterwards led the flock. It is a remarkable fact, as showing how important color is in the courtship of birds, that Mr. Boardman, a well-known collector and observer of birds for many years in the northern United States, 
has never in his large experience seen an albino paired with another bird, yet he has had opportunities of observing many albinos belonging to several species. This statement is given by Mr. A. Leith Adams in his Field and Forest Rambles, 1873, and accords with his own experience. It can hardly be maintained that albinos in a state of nature are incapable of breeding, as they can be raised with the greatest facility under confinement. It appears, therefore, that we must attribute the fact that they do not pair to the rejection by their normally colored comrades. Female birds not only exert choice, but in some few cases they court the male, or even fight together for his possession. Sir R. Huron states that with peafowl the first advances are always made by the female. Something of the same kind takes place, according to Audubon, with the older females of the wild turkey. With the capercailzi, the females flit round the male whilst he is parading at one of the places of assemblage and solicit his attention. We have seen that a tame wild duck seduced an unwilling pintail drake after a long courtship. Mr. Bartlett believes that the Lophophorus, like many other gallinaceous birds, is naturally polygamous, but two females cannot be placed in the same cage with a male, as they fight so much together. The following instance of rivalry is more surprising as it relates to bullfinches, which usually pair for life. Mr. Jenner Ware introduced a dull-colored and ugly female into his aviary, and she immediately tacked another mated female, so unmercifully that the latter had to be separated. The new female did all the courtship, and was at last successful, for she paired with the male. But after a time she met with a just retribution, for, ceasing to be pugnacious, she was replaced by the old female and the male then deserted his new and returned to his old love. In all ordinary cases, the male is so eager that he will accept any female, and does not, as far as we can judge, prefer one to the other. But, as we shall hereafter see, exceptions to this rule apparently occur in some few groups. With domesticated birds, I have heard of only one case of males showing any preference for certain females, namely that of the domestic cock, who, according to the high authority of Mr. Hewitt, prefers the young to the older hens. On the other hand, in affecting hybrid unions between the male pheasant and common hens, Mr. Hewitt is convinced that the pheasant invariably prefers the older birds. He does not appear to be the least influenced by their color, but is most capricious in his attachments. From some inexplicable cause he shows the most determined aversion to certain hens, which no care on the part of the breeder can overcome. Mr. Hewitt informs me that some hens are quite unattractive even to the males of their own species, so that they may be kept with several cocks during a whole season, and not one egg out of forty or fifty will prove fertile. On the other hand, with a long-tailed duck, Harelda glacialis, it has been remarked, says Mr. Ekstrom, that certain females are much more courted than the rest. Frequently, indeed, one sees an individual surrounded by six or eight amorous males. Whether this statement is credible, I know not, but the native sportsmen shoot these females in order to stuff them as decoys. With respect to female birds feeling a preference for particular males, we must bear in mind that we can judge of choice being exerted only by analogy. 
if an inhabitant of another planet were to behold a number of rustics at a fair courting a pretty girl and quarrelling about her like birds at one of their places of assemblage he would by the eagerness of the wooers to please her and display their finery infer that she had the power of choice now with birds the evidence stands thus they have acute powers of observation and they seem to have some taste for the beautiful both in color and sound it is certain that the females occasionally exhibit from unknown causes the strongest antipathies and preferences for particular males when the sexes differ in color or in other ornaments the males with rare exceptions are more decorated either permanently or temporarily during the breeding season they sedulously display their various ornaments exert their voices and perform strange antics in the presence of the females even well-armed males who it might be thought would altogether depend for success on the law of battle are in most cases highly ornamented and their ornaments have been acquired at the expense of some loss of power in other cases ornaments have been acquired at the cost of increased risk from birds and beasts of prey with various species many individuals of both sexes congregate at the same spot and their courtship is a prolonged affair there is even reason to suspect that the males and females within the same district do not always succeed in pleasing each other and pairing what then are we to conclude from these facts and considerations does the male parade his charms with so much pomp and rivalry for no purpose are we not justified in believing that the female exerts a choice and that she receives the addresses of the male who pleases her most it is not probable that she consciously deliberates but she is most excited or attracted by the most beautiful or melodious or gallant males nor need it be supposed that the female studies each stripe or spot of color that the peahen for instance admires each detail in the gorgeous train of the peacock she is probably struck only by the general effect nevertheless after hearing how carefully the male argus pheasant displays the elegant primary wing feathers and erects his oscillated plumes in the right position for their full effect or again how the male goldfinch alternately displays his gold bespangled wings we ought not to feel too sure that the female does not attend to each detail of beauty we can judge as already remarked of choice being exerted only from analogy and the mental powers of birds do not differ fundamentally from ours from these various considerations we may conclude that the pairing of birds is not left to chance but that those males which are best able by their various charms to please or excite the female are under ordinary circumstances accepted if this be admitted there is not much difficulty in understanding how male birds have gradually acquired their ornamental characters all animals present individual differences and as man can modify his domesticated birds by selecting the individuals which appear to him the most beautiful so the habitual or even occasional preference by the female of the more attractive males would almost certainly lead to their modification and such modifications might in the course of time be augmented to almost any extent compatible with the existence of the species variability of birds and especially of their secondary sexual characters variability and inheritance are the foundations for the work of selection that domesticated birds have varied greatly their variations being inherited is certain 
that birds in a state of nature have been modified into distinct races is now universally admitted. According to Dr. Blasius, there are 425 indubitable species of birds which breed in Europe, besides 60 forms which are frequently regarded as distinct species. Of the latter, Blasius thinks that only 10 are really doubtful, and that the other 50 ought to be united with their newest allies but this shows that there must be considerable amount of variation with some of our European birds. It is also an unsettled point with naturalists whether several North American birds ought to be ranked as specifically distinct from the corresponding European species. So again, many North American forms, which until lately were named as distinct species, are now considered to be local races. Variations may divide into two classes those which appear to our ignorance to arise spontaneously, and those which are directly related to the surrounding conditions, so that all or nearly all the individuals of the same species are similarly modified. Cases of the latter kind have recently been observed with care by Mr. J. A. Allen. Notwithstanding the influence of climate on the color of birds, it is difficult to account for the dull or dark tints of almost all the species inhabiting certain countries, for instance, the Galapagos Islands under the equator, the wide-temperature plains of Patagonia, and, as it appears, Egypt. These countries are open and afford little shelter to birds, but it seems doubtful whether the absence of brightly colored species can be explained on the principle of protection, for on the pampas, which are equally open, though covered by green grass, and where the birds would be equally exposed to danger, Many brilliant and conspicuously colored species are common. I have sometimes speculated whether the prevailing dull tints of the scenery in the above-named countries may not have affected the appreciation of bright colors by the birds inhabiting them. Who shows that in the United States many species of birds gradually become more strongly colored in proceeding southward, and more lightly colored in proceeding westward to the arid plains of the interior? Both sexes seem to generally be affected in a like manner, but sometimes one sex more than the other. This result is not incompatible with the belief that the colors of birds are mainly due to the accumulation of successive variations through sexual selection, for even after the sexes have been greatly differentiated, climate might produce an equal effect on both sexes, or a greater effect on one sex than on the other, owing to some constitutional difference. Individual differences between the members of the same species are admitted by everyone to occur under a state of nature. Sudden and strongly marked variations are rare. It is also doubtful whether, if beneficial, they would often be preserved through selection and transmitted to succeeding generations. I had always perceived that rarely and strongly marked deviations of structure, deserving to be called monstrosities, could seldom be preserved through natural selection, and that the preservation of even highly beneficial variations would depend to a certain extent on chance. I had also fully appreciated the importance of mere individual differences, and this led me to insist so strongly on the importance of that unconscious form of selection by man which follows from the preservation of the most valued individuals of each breed, without any intention on his part to modify the characters of the breed. But until I read an able article in the North British Review, which has been of more use to me than any other review, 
I did not see how great the chances were against the preservation of variations, whether slight or strongly pronounced, occurring only in single individuals. Nevertheless, it may be worth while to give the few cases which I have been able to collect, relating chiefly to color, simple albinism and melanism being excluded. Mr. Gould is well known to admit the existence of a few varieties, for he esteems very slight differences as specific, yet he states that near Bogota certain hummingbirds belonging to the genus Sinanthus are divided into two or three races or varieties, which differ from each other in the coloring of the tail, some having the whole of the feathers blue, while others have the eight central ones tipped with beautiful green. It does not appear that intermediate gradations have been observed in this or the following cases. In the males alone, of one of the Australian parakeets, the thighs in some are scarlet, and others grass-green. In another parakeet of the same country, some individuals have the band across the wing coverts bright yellow, while in others the same part is tinged with red. In the United States, some few of the males of the scarlet tanager, Tanagra ruba, have a beautiful transverse band of glowing red on the smaller wing coverts. But this variation seems to be somewhat rare, so that its preservation through sexual selection would follow only under unusually favorable circumstances. In Bengal, the honey buzzard, Pernus cristata, has either a small rudimental crest on its head, or none at all. So slight a difference, however, would not have been worth notice, had not this same species possessed in southern India a well-marked occipital crest formed of several graduated feathers. The following case is in some respects more interesting. A pied variety of the raven, with the head, breast, abdomen, and parts of the wing and tail feathers white, is confined to the Faroe Islands. It is not very rare there, for Graba saw during his visit from eight to ten living specimens although the characters of this variety are not quite constant, yet it has been named by several distinguished ornithologists as a distinct species. The fact of the pied birds being pursued and persecuted with much clamor by the other ravens of the island was the chief cause which led Brunnock to conclude that they were specifically distinct, but this is now known to be an error. This case seems analogous to that lately given of albino birds not pairing from being rejected by their comrades in various parts of the northern seas a remarkable variety of the common guillemot uria troile is found and in Faroe, one out of every five birds according to graba's estimation presents this variation it is characterized by a pure white ring round the eye with a curved narrow white line an inch and a half in length, extending back from the ring. This conspicuous character has caused the bird to be ranked by several ornithologists as a distinct species under the name of U. lacrimans, but it is now known to be merely a variety. It often pairs with the common kind, yet intermediate gradations have never been seen, nor is this surprising, for variations which appear suddenly are often, as I have elsewhere shown, transmitted either unaltered or not at all. We thus see that two distinct forms of the same species may coexist in the same district, 
and we cannot doubt that if the one had possessed any advantage over the other, it would soon have been multiplied to the exclusion of the latter. If, for instance, the male pied ravens, instead of being persecuted by their comrades, had been highly attractive, like the above pied peacock, to the black female ravens, their numbers would have rapidly increased, and this would have been a case of sexual selection. With respect to the slight individual differences which are common, in a greater or less degree, to all the members of the same species, we have every reason to believe that they are by far the most important for the work of selection. Secondary sexual characters are eminently liable to vary both with animals in a state of nature and under domestication. There is also reason to believe, as we have seen in our eighth chapter, that variations are more apt to occur in the male than in the female sex. All these contingencies are highly favorable for sexual selection. Whether characters thus acquired are transmitted to one sex or to both sexes depends, as we shall see in the following chapter, on the form of inheritance which prevails. It is sometimes difficult to form an opinion whether certain slight differences between the sexes of birds are simply the result of variability with sexually limited inheritance, without the aid of sexual selection, or whether they have been augmented through this latter process. I do not here refer to the many instances where the male displays splendid colors or other ornaments, of which the female partakes to a slight degree, for these are almost certainly due to the characters primarily acquired by the male having been more or less transferred to the female. But what are we to conclude with respect to certain birds in which, for instance, the eyes differ slightly in color in the two sexes? In some cases the eyes differ conspicuously. Thus with the storks of the genus Xenorhynchus, those of the male are blackish hazel, whilst those of the females are gamboge yellow. With many hornbills, buceros, as I hear from Mr. Blythe, the males have intense crimson eyes and those of the females are white. In the Buceros bicornis, the hind margin of the cask and a stripe on the crest of the beak are black in the male, but not so in the female. Are we to suppose that these black marks and the crimson color of the eyes have been preserved or augmented through sexual selection in the males? This is very doubtful, for Mr. Bartlett showed me in the zoological gardens that the inside of the mouth of this Buceros is black in the male and flesh-colored in the female and their external appearance or beauty would not be thus affected i observed in chile that the iris in the condor when about a year old is dark brown but changes at maturity into yellowish brown in the male and into bright red in the female the male has also a small longitudinal leaden-colored fleshy crest or comb the comb of many gallinaceous birds is highly ornamental and assumes vivid colors during the act of courtship but what are we to think of the dull-colored comb of the condor which does not appear to us in the least ornamental the same question may be asked in regard to various other characters such as the knob on the base of the beak of the chinese goose Anser signoides, which is much larger in the male than the female no certain answer can be given to those questions, but we ought to be cautious in assuming that knobs and various fleshy appendages cannot be attractive to the female, when we remember that with savage races of man various hideous deformities, deep scars on the face, with the flesh raised, 
into protuberances the septum of the nose pierced by sticks or bones holes in the ears and lips stretched widely open are all admired as ornamental whether or not unimportant differences between the sexes such as those just specified have been preserved through sexual selection these differences as well as all others must primarily depend on the laws of variation on the principle of correlated development the plumage often varies on different parts of the body or over the whole body in the same manner we see this well illustrated in certain breeds of the fowl in all the breeds the feathers on the neck and loins of the males are elongated and are called hackles now when both sexes acquire a topknot which is a new character in the genus the feathers on the head of the male become hackle-shaped evidently on the principle of correlation whilst those on the head of the female are of the ordinary shape the color also of the hackles forming the topknot of the male is often correlated with that of the hackles on the neck and loins as may be seen by comparing these feathers in the golden and silver-spangled polish the houdons and creve cur breeds in some natural species we may observe exactly the same correlation in the colors of these same feathers as in the males of the splendid gold and amherst pheasants the structure of each individual feather generally causes any change in its coloring to be symmetrical we see this in the various laced spangled and penciled breeds of the fowl and on the principle of correlation the feathers over the whole body are often colored in the same manner we are thus enabled without much trouble to rear breeds with their plumage marked almost as symmetrically as in natural species in laced spangled fowls the colored margins of the feathers are abruptly defined but in a mongrel raised by me from a black spanish cock glossed with green and a white game hen all the feathers were greenish black excepting towards their extremities which were yellowish white but between the white extremities and the black bases there was on each feather a symmetrical curved zone of dark brown in some instances the shaft of the feather determines the distribution of the tints thus with the body feathers of a mongrel from the same black spanish cock and a silver spangled polish hen the shaft together with a narrow space on each side was greenish black and this was surrounded by a regular zone of dark brown edged with brownish white in these cases we have feathers symmetrically shaded like those which give so much elegance to the plumage of many natural species i have also noticed a variety of the common pigeon with the wing bars symmetrically zoned with three bright shades instead of being simply black on a slaty blue ground as in the parent species in many groups of birds the plumage is differently colored in the several species yet certain spots marks or stripes are retained by all analogous cases occur with the breeds of the pigeon which usually retain the two winged bars though they may be colored red yellow white black or blue the rest of the plumage being of some wholly different tint here is a more curious case in which certain marks are retained though colored in a manner almost exactly the opposite of what is natural the aboriginal pigeon has a blue tail with the terminal halves of the outer webs of the two outer tail feathers white now there is a sub-variety having a white instead of a blue tail with precisely that part black which is white in the parent species End of section seventeen.